You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. Tonight we're going to be talking about what will the return of Christ be like. We have one more theological term this semester to impress all our friends with, which goes like this. I'll say it, then you repeat after me. Eschatology. You guys sound so good. Okay, this is about the end times we're going to talk about. If you got your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to Revelation 19. And uh, we're going to either be in that book of the Bible tonight that you love to study or you avoid like the plagues written therein. Okay, so uh, we're going to read this. But um, how many of you, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been that person or known that person who loves, loves, loves to study end time stuff? Either you are that person or you know that person. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. So some of you, you love it. Some of you just know that person who's always talking about it. Uh, I have mentioned before that when I first started dating Amanda, we met, my, my soon-to-be wife, we, uh, we met when I was a high school junior. She was a sophomore. Uh, and about a year or so later, she thought this was serious enough that I should go meet a lot of her family. And I'll never forget meeting her grandfather, who, uh, when he looks at me, he just kind of sizes me up for a little bit. He goes, I hear you go preacher boy. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, come down the hall with me. I looked at her, and she's like, God, like I know what I was walking into. So I walked down the hall, and um, and we, we get down there, and... Uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I had, walks into this bedroom and he turns on this light and there were so many charts and timelines and all kinds of stuff where he has years and years and years studied the scripture and trying to understand the patterns of revelation and what it would look like when Christ would come back. And I looked like in some kind of ways, like it, it was like, y'all ever seen like little, the beautiful mind stuff where all the kind of stuff, you know, together, like I was, I was like overwhelmed. There was so much thought, so much things to it. And he starts pointing all these things and, and showing me all this different stuff and his own uh, his his charts and timelines. I just got overwhelmed by it. And all the time throughout our life until literally uh, when he passed about a year and a half ago, uh, sometimes something would happen in the news. He goes, you hear about that today? Get ready. <laughs> okay, like it was just like he just had certain things he was always looking for, right? And I think what was so neat about that was that as you look, you, you do see somebody who was very ready and eager for Christ's return. And sometimes he would teach me certain things, and I would say this. I don't know if I would agree on every fine little detail of his interpretation, but I do know this. This is a man who's longing to see Jesus. He was longing for Christ to come back and fix everything broken in this world, and those are two things that I can agree with him on. And so as we look at this, we're going to be looking at how Christians believe Christ will return, but they disagree on how his return will progress. And understanding of the coming millennium is essential to, to how someone will interpret this concept. And we're going to talk about the millennium, okay, and, and looking at what that, that looks like. But let's look at this little next couple lines here just to make sure you know. As we use that word eschatology, eschatology is the study of the last things, okay? It's the study of the last things. What is it that brings us to understanding that there is coming an end to what we know about this world and there's something else to come. So eschatology is anything the study of the last things. The church does not possess unity in interpreting what I would say Revelation 20's description of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. That 1,000 is that millennium word, okay? So in Revelation 19 and 20, it talks about some final things that are to take place. 
And the church as a whole does not possess unity in interpreting what that 1,000 years is going to be like, not even in, uh, in any kind of close way. Now, I'm going to tell you tonight, I'm going to give you four major schools of thought, and next week you're supposed to come back, we're going to vote, and we're going to settle this thing once and for all, okay? No, I wouldn't have I wish we could. Wouldn't that be awesome? But I'll also say this. People who study this all the time and love the Lord fall in very different camps on this. And I think we have to find unity and clarity in the things which we know for sure and what some theologians will say, and we have charity for those certain things that were uncertain and we allow people to think differently than us, right? So with it, let's look for a moment at Revelation 19. I want to pull out a few different things for, from you from these couple chapters and then we'll explain how this comes up, okay? Uh, chapter 19, um, let's go to verse number 1. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Who is that? Well, that's just personification of all the evil Babylon and forces that are working with Satan and whatnot, that are deceiving people, causing people in all kinds of sensual sins. He has avenged on her the blood of her servants. And they cry out. And there's, uh, if you look at verse 4, the 24 elders, four living creatures, fall down and they worship God. They're, they're just, so there's this beautiful scene. You go down to verse 6, and you're probably the subheading above that section. says about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's talking about, I uh, heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Now who is this marriage supper of the Lamb? It's this picture that the church is called the bride of Christ. And so not one individual member, but as the whole, it's this picture of that like Christ is, is, is the one who is coming after and doing everything to prepare to have his bride have a home. And to be connected with him forever. And so it's this beautiful picture of what our relationship as the church should be with Christ. Then he goes on to verse 11. Go down there. It says, Then I saw heaven open to behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judge and makes war. Just notice, first time Christ comes into the world, he comes riding a humble on a donkey. This time he's not coming humble and he's not on a donkey, okay? He's coming on a mighty war horse. And it's now no more time for deliberation. It's time for everyone to find their place. And so it says there, um, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written on it like no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Uh, it goes on through here, this, this great kind of picture of this mighty, victorious warrior coming through to basically... Take care of business, okay, right? I mean, just get everything done. In fact, if you go down, um, go to verse 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for what? Thousand years, and I threw him into the and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, that all makes sense, everybody. Got the timeline figured out? Okay. Um, this is where we've got some complications to unpack together. Let me give you an example. Um, one day I was sitting at my house when a, um, uh, a duo of Jehovah's Witnesses came by. I was doing some yard work on a Saturday. They kind of surprised me. I sat down and said, hey, let's sit down let's talk. And they began to start talking about in the book of Revelation, there's 144,000 that are going to be in a particular place in heaven, right? So I asked them a question. I said, do you believe it's a literal 144,000 or do you think that's a symbolic number? It's literal. I said, so like... Exactly 144,000 are getting in. Exactly. I said, so between you two, do y'all ever wonder who's going to get the last spot? And they said, what? I said, you got to be thinking. If you're done like a good work, it's like, what if you outdo him? Do you ever wonder if y'all are in competition with each other for like the last spot? No, we don't think like that. I said, I would. I'd be like making sure I do more good works than you, and I'm going to try to get that last spot. He's like, no, we don't think like that. I said, no, you got to think like that. And he said, I said, so you mean to tell me, I said, you believe in the book of Revelation like, it's literal. He goes, it's literal. I said, do you think everything in the book of Revelation is literal? He goes, everything in the book of Revelation is literal. I said, okay. Go to chapter 2 for a second. Chapter 3, I said, one time it talks about this church that Jesus is going to come in. It's going to steal their lampstand away from them. And the guy starts busting out laughing. He goes, is Jesus going to literally steal their lamp? I said, that's the question. He goes, okay, maybe some of it's symbolic. I said, aha, I got you. Okay, here's the deal, right? I said, so some of it's symbolic. I said, who determines What's symbolic and what's literal? Okay? That's the hard question, right? You see what I'm getting after with my, my buddy? And, and so this is the deal. Uh, two things we get to Revelation. One is that there were certain things in here that we would say are literal and some would be symbolic. So is it symbolism that Jesus is not going to steal their lamp? Well, what are you saying? They're not going to be a church anymore. Well, is there a hundred literal 144,000? Is it a literal 1,000 years? Is, it, is he going to come in on a horse? Like, What's literal, what's symbolic? The other issue is this. In the book of Revelation, it's the Apostle John getting this vision of what Christ is showing him about the end that is to come. And we don't know if all of this is in what I would call a chronological timeline. Does that make sense? So like, if you look at your Bible, by the way, your Bible is not completely in a chronological timeline. Like, You can't start in Genesis and you end in Revelation without taking some left turns along the way. Like... In fact, if your Bible was chronological, what you would do is you'd read Genesis 1 through 11, and then you'd read the book of Job, and then you'd come back to Genesis chapter 12. Okay, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's not, they're, they're written in different ways, but they're not completely in order. So I give this example. Um, some people, the issue with Revelation 19.20 is, is it chronological, like this happens, and then this happens, and this happens, or... In some ways, some people think, well, no, chapter 20 actually happens before chapter 19, but John just got it kind of confused or kind of goes back and forth on this. Because I'll give you an example. 
If you go to chapter 12, it talks about a great dragon trying to gobble up a baby. If you ever read that, that's pretty encouraging to get your kids to sleep at night. Um, but this is the picture. You go, what is that about? Well, most people think it's a vision of what happened symbolically when Christ was born. That Satan is trying to stop this birth, but is in the book of Revelation, we're not talking about Jesus' first coming, we're talking about his second, but it seems like he goes back in the timeline, for example. So this is kind of what complicates the matters if you look at. So with this, that issue that you look at in verse number three about here is the devil going to be thrown into a pit, locked up for a thousand years, and then he's going to get turned loose for a little while to cause a lot of chaos. What is that about? And that is where we get to millennium. Now, you see on here that there are uh, really three major categories we're going to look at tonight um, with one kind of sub thing, and it all has to do with millennials. Some of you have heard these phrases. Some of you are like, I don't know where y'all are getting this from. Um, it, but these are the, the three major concepts. One is premillennialism. Second is amillennialism. And the third is, if I may guess, postmillennialism. Okay? And so once again, uh, we'll unpack this together to make sure you get it. Let's talk about Pre-millennialism, okay? So the prefix pre means what? Before, okay? So in theory, what does that mean? That something is happening before the what? Millennium, right? Okay, so premillennium is the belief that the return of Christ will precede a literal earthly kingdom on earth for a millennium, okay? So this belief is that the return of Christ will come before this millennium, millennium that's speaking of is kind of experienced on earth. So Christ's return happens pre-millennium. Okay, make sense? So it happens beforehand. Now with this, this view would support a chronologically successive interpretation of Revelation's 19 final battle and Revelation 20's millennium. Okay? So this view, premillennialism, would say chapter 19 and chapter 20 reads just kind of the way that you read it. Jesus comes back, gathers all the people together, goes after them, hits a war, defeats everybody, and says, all right, Satan, you're going in prison for a thousand years, and he literally reigns on the earth for a thousand years. But then after that time, he's let loose for a little bit time before the final end is there, okay? So this is that view that, as we just read it, chapters 19 and 20 have come together. Now, because in church, folks, it's never enough just to have three dividing things. We've got to even make it more complicated, okay? But with this, within this belief, two different versions exist, and here they are. Dispensational premillennialism. My mouth is going to be hurt by the end of the day, by the way. And what's called historic premillennialism, okay? Two different versions that believe. Christ is going to return before this time of the millennium takes place. First one is dispensational. The second one is historic. Now, which one do you think probably has been around longer? One that's called dispensational or one that's been called historic? Historic has been around longer than dispensational, okay? Now, you may ask, which one's more popular? Some of you know that right away. It's dispensational, okay? And we're going to explain what that is. Even though it hasn't been around as long, it is very popular. So let me give you an example. Many of you in this room, you go, this is already way over my head. I'm trying to make sure we get all on the same page. This is a lot to process. But some of you would say, I just saw that movie Left Behind one time. Like, which one is that? Right? Okay. 
That's dispensational premillennialism, okay? Anything that has to do with that, anything that has to do with a lot of what our common understandings of a rapture and this taking place or not is going to fall in that category, but we've got to make sure we understand these two. So let's start in historic, which means it's been around a little bit longer. This view holds that the present age, what we're living right now, will eventually experience a brief period of tribulation followed by Christ's return to usher in a kingdom on earth. So, there will be a brief period of challenges that will take place, that the world will get a little bit crazier before it gets better, then Christ is going to show up, and he's actually going to establish a kingdom on earth. And a lot of you go, I thought we just went to heaven. Well, when you read this, uh, in fact, if you go continue on to Revelation chapter 21, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new, you might know what it is? Earth. So at the end of all things, it's not just like you're either in heaven and hell. Apparently, there's a new heaven and a new earth, which means that we're going to be doing something on earth as well. So sometimes our common kind of way of saying, we're going home to be with heaven. Yes, that's true, but not completely because there's this picture of why would Christ make a new earth unless there's going to be something happening there, right? So with this, before that takes place, there's going to be a time of tribulation that followed by Christ is going to return, and he's going to usher in this kingdom on earth. Christ's return will be accompanied by a resurrection of believers, okay, and a public rapture. So what will happen is there will be a resurrection of believers, so those who have died in Christ will rise at that time, and there will be this public type of rapture that all of God's saints that have died and that are living at that time will be called together to meet him, uh, at that time. So there will be a literal place where that will take uh, example in, 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 in this world. Now, within this belief, it believes that Jesus will physically reign as king over all the earth. Some of you are like, he's got my vote. <laughs> okay, right? Like, uh, I'm good about how that works. But this, this idea is that Jesus will physically reign as king over all the earth. Okay? During the thousand year, During the thousand year reign. Yep. So it'll be a thousand year, Satan is silenced, he's, he's locked up, and Jesus will be reigning in a kingdom on earth. Things will be really, really good during that time. During that time as well, it's important to know, Satan is bound during that time, but will be released, leading many astray. So after the millennium, after a thousand years, Satan is allowed to be released and is given a short, abbreviated time, and he will deceive many, lead many astray, causing many that may even claim to follow Christ to actually join in Satan's last attempt at a mutiny and to, to win a battle that they know they cannot win, or at least Satan does. At that moment, after he has led many astray, for whatever time that would be, Christ defeats all rebellion, judges all humanity, and initiates what we would call and understand as the final state. So, in this idea, make sure you, you get this. He's, he's going to defeat how much rebellion? All of it, right? No more rebellion at the point. He judges all humanity, says you belong here, you belong here, based upon what you've done with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he initiates what is the final state where all people either be with God forever or without God forever. Okay? So in this timeline, uh, let's, let's, let's see if I can do this. Jesus is going to come back, right? 
there's going to be a conflict. That's my, my conflict symbol. Okay, there's going to be a conflict. Um, Satan is thrown down into a pit, locked up for how many years? 1,000 years, where King Jesus is ruling and reigning. That's my crown picture. If, uh, I don't. Okay, yeah, there you go. There's my crown. He's ruling for 1,000 years, and then all of a sudden, Satan can escape for a short period of time. Jesus uh, ends him, and then what do we have? We're now in eternity with God forever. Okay, that's the picture. Okay, so, so peace and harmony at that point where we finally get to see him. That is the timeline of what's called historic premillennialism. Now, I want to also let you guys know this. Tonight, I am not going to answer all your questions or tell you, and this is what Pastor Trav believes. Okay, we're not going to get to that place tonight at all. But in every one of these, I want to tell you, there are questions that other people say, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Because even some of you, you're listening going, wait a minute, how does this work? Here's some questions to consider, at least on historic premillennialism. Is Israel's restoration, is it spiritual or national in nature when you read Scripture? So when you look at the way that this is worded, a lot of times it's hard to understand. Is this a spiritual renewal or is this a national around the kingdom of Israel? What's taking place there? Because it's not exactly in that timeline. Is it making sure exactly where does Israel play in this? The second, is the progression biblically acceptable, chronologically understandable, or is it both? Right? Because I'll be honest with you. Uh, a lot of times people will, you'll read what the Bible says and you go, that doesn't make sense. This makes more sense to me, right? Okay, how it, I think it would work better if, you know, why would Christ come down and then wait for a little bit to have a final conflict? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, it, it doesn't have to make sense to you. Is it what God's word says, right? Okay, so, so a lot of times I don't think God should do it that way. Well, you're wrong. Okay, like so, so we've got to make sure that we understand that thing. Now, with this, that's historic premillennialism. That was one of the earliest trains of thought uh, in the early church. And we're going to get to what's called dispensational premillennialism, which is the most, I would say, popular view of the day. Dispensational theology was introduced in the what century? 19th century by John Nelson Darby, who believed that biblical history is divided into certain ages or what? Dispensation. So dispensation is kind of an age. There's a church age, there's a this age, there's a that age. He kind of sees it as different sections throughout history that kind of like says, this is what, I'll give me an example, like what's the medieval age, the enlightenment? He looks at a much bigger church. This is the golden age of the church. And it encapsulates all this time and this time, whatever. So now, automatically with this, um, one thing we have to least unpack, we're going to look at the questions to consider but I do want you to see that this theology just has come about in the last couple hundred years. Which, some people would say, well, finally somebody figured it out. Or some people would go, why has nobody thought of this until recently? Depending upon how you land on this, you're going to see that one way or the other. But that's a constant kind of criticism of this view. But we're going to understand, let's make sure we understand what it is. Because, once again, even if it took a while for the church to get it, if it's right, we want to embrace it, Right? But if it's something that can be kind of, we want to make sure we interpret it according to Scripture. Um, dispensational premillennialists hold that the existing Jewish state will literally experience the Old Testament prophecies regarding the kingdom. So where this one can really be distinguished among the others is really this issue right here. What do you do with the Jewish people? What do you do with the nation of Israel? So if anybody is talking about their end times and they're really, really speaking a whole, whole lot about Israel, typically that will tip your hat to go, okay, this is more so what they're talking about. Not a bad thing, but this is 
This view is a lot around what happens to Israel in the midst of all this. This view believes that the millennium is a literal what? Thousand years. Some of the other views would say, that's eh, a thousand-ish. It means a time period, right? But we don't know if it means a literal thousand years. Uh, this view would say, not a thousand years. It's precise. It's exactly on. I would also encourage you uh, one thing. Second Peter uh, 3.8 is the place where it talks about that with the Lord, a day is like a, what, a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day that this, you know, his understanding of time, our understanding of time is kind of, but this view would say, no, 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 it is a literal thousand years that we believe that to be. The distinguishing characteristic of this view has to do with the prominence of Israel's restoration, as mentioned again. So with this, um, while there are, um, and, and probably even in this room, you're, different places we would all believe on this, but this view is, is very much so that the issue, once again, of Israel's prominence and restoration, that there is coming a day that the kingdom of Israel will be reestablished on the earth and have a prominent place in the international landscape. Now, um, I'm trying to think of a theologian who said this, that one of the best uh, evidences that there is a God is that the Jewish nation has survived as long as it has. I mean, you think about it through history. How many times the nation should have been snuffed out, even in, in the last hundred years, right? It's, it's remarkable that the Jewish nation is still around, that Israel still exists, and yet it's just sort of, it survived. I mean, it survived attack after attack after attack. Uh, this pharaoh to this dictator, you know, you just name it, right? The, the, all over the place. So this view really has to do with this issue of... Um, that how Israel will be restored as a nation where the temple sacrifices be back in play and kind of what you see in the Old Testament will kind of be back at a prominence again. So the questions to consider here, and this is probably the, the main one there, um, does God have different plans for Israel and the what? Church. This is the biggest point of conflict that people would have with this issue. Well, the first one is, okay, is it making sense chronologically? This, this one has to do with this. Um, so, simple way of understanding things. The Old Testament, the people of God, or would be what? Israel, right? And the New Testament, the people of God are known as what? The church, right? Okay, that makes sense. When you get to Revelation, you go, are those two separate groups? Or does all the church be lumped into Israel? Or does all of Israel be lumped into the church, right? Now, on a real practical level, let me explain something to you to make sure everybody understands this. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and what? No one comes to the Father but through him, right? So you can't get to God outside of Jesus. I don't care which path you say you're going to take. The only way to the Father is, is through Jesus. So you can't say, well, you know, there's this, yeah, but the Israel's going to kind of be, no, no, no. The only way that somebody who's ethnically Jewish is going to find salvation is through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, we all, we clear on that? This is the only way it can happen. Now, is there going to be a time where Christ is going to say, one more time, Jewish nation in front of me, we're going to have one more conversation, right? We're going to, we're going to clear all this thing out one more time because God's special relationship to the people throughout history. But this is the question. Is there a division that took place between the Old Testament and the New Testament where Jesus would say it in certain ways that the nation of Israel has turned their back on him, right? And he reaches out and establishes this church. 
But obviously, as you read the pages of, of Revelation, there's obviously something about this nation that's going to play prominent. So, is this word right here Israel? Does that represent a people or a nation? A group of people by faith or a group of people by identification? Does that make sense? And you go, which one is it? I don't know. Okay, I can't answer that for you. But I do know this. This is a complicated question to entertain. The other uh, deal with this uh, belief that really causes a lot of problem is, is this belief system too new to be accurate? Like, do, is there a problem that nobody started talking this way until the 1800s? Is that a problem? Now, some people would say, well, it's, it's correct. I, I would also, I, I didn't add this here, but I'd say this for all of them. Um, I believe that any belief in the end times must be able to be believed in any time in the world, in any culture in the world, or else it's unbiblical. And the reason why I say that is, um, I've been to parts in the world that if you told them what some people would believe, and, I, and, and these are, I'm saying, they're, in all these views, there's a lot of different variations of it. But in some of these views, it's almost this like thing that the church is not going to have to endure any type of persecution. And before things get any bad, any, any worse, God's going to call us up. And I've been places to the world where people are dying, beaten, their houses are burned for following Christ that would say, if that's true, that Christ is going to return before things get bad, he's late. He's late. Because you look around the world, and I'm just saying this, like we can't just have an Americanized version like, well, because we got it easy, Christ is not going to let us go through. Like you go to places in the world today where people are literally having their kids stolen from them, their wives beaten in front of them to say, you denounce Christ or else. This is happening all over the world. And if our view is this, before things get hard, Christ is going to come back, then that view cannot be accepted at all places at all times. It can't be accurate. So we've got to say, in all of these, a step back, what can be handled in, in every cultural world at any time in the world? Okay, so that's, that's pre-mill. Okay, now let's talk about Ah, millennialism, uh, just to once again confuse you even more, okay? Y'all are hanging with me. I'm proud of you, okay? If your neighbor's dodging off, you nudge them, okay? Or nudge them a little bit and say, you better be ready. Jesus is coming back. Okay, ah, millennialism, the prefix A means what? No. No, okay? So, give me an example. Um, there's a word called atheism, right? We are in a theology class, which is a study of God, right? Theos, God. So atheism means what? No God. No God. Make sense? So anytime you see the word a in front of something like that, the prefix, it means no God. So what does this mean? No millennium, okay? In the way that we would understand it. All millennialists believe that Christ is currently reigning in heaven between his two comings, okay? So there was, when he comes first time, there is when he comes the second time, when he comes as a baby, uh, he rides in on a donkey. The next time he's coming in on a war horse, he's taking over, right? Okay, And that there's not actually a literal 1,000 years in between, but there is a time frame between this where Christ is actually reigning right here, right now, but not in the way that you and I would necessarily typically think through. So... This group takes 1,000 years to be a symbolic number representing the gospel's advancement and the world's hostility. So it says that right now we are living in a time where Christ is reigning. He has defeated sin and death. He has risen victoriously. He has ascended to God in heaven. 
He is living with him there now. And this 1,000 years represents a time of the church age where the gospel is advancing among the nations. And even though the enemy is trying to snuff it out, it can't do it. And God is reigning during this time. During this season, no time, Satan is hindered but not wholly ineffective. So he's locked up, but he's still just sending out his minions and dealing with stuff. But he's not as dangerous as he once was. He's been defeated on the cross. He's still causing some issues but he's hindered from what has happened in the past. So with this, that's why we have spiritual warfare. That's why we have experiences, all kinds of things that, that make things challenging. But he's not ineffective during that time. There's a belief in this view system that Satan will increase opposition before Christ's return, only to be soundly what? Defeated. Defeated. So, in this amillennialist view where there is no official millennium where he's reigning on the earth satan will kind of be around but towards the end he raises up the temperature gets things a little bit more difficult for the church and then christ returns one one final time and and completely defeats satan and ends all of his tyranny upon us amillennialists interpret all kingdom descriptions within the tension of what's called already but not yet. Now, I want to say this. This view right here is a view that is a part of this, but also not completely uh, only lonely to this view. And the reason why I mean this is, what does it mean already, but not yet? Um, would you say today that you and I, we are a part of the kingdom of God, yes or no? Yes. Already, we experience the kingdom of God because Christ is king. He rules and reigns over us. We're a part of a nation of priests and we're doing certain things. But are we experiencing the kingdom of God at its fullest right now? No. So it's already, but not yet, right? Do I have the peace of God in my life? Already, yes, I do. But do I have it in completion? Not yet, okay? So this is the tension. So all of us will say, man, I, I kind of agree with that, right? On some level, we would agree with that. Now, they really walk this tension very well to say a lot of the kingdom analogies is, Yes, there's a people of God, it's advancing, and so we're experiencing some of this already, but not yet. It's not full, it's not complete. So, questions to consider with this view. While Satan was defeated at the cross, has he been sealed in the abyss during this present time, right? So, Revelation chapter 20 says he's sealed in the abyss, he's not doing anything. Well, some of us will go, well, if he's still in the abyss, he got out last night because he surely was bothering me, okay? Right? Like you'd say, he's still active in the world today. Okay, yeah. But is he as uh, is he as forceful? Is it is is it, is the people you know is it demons and whatnot working for him? Is that what's causing the issue? But could we say as look at this present time? Does it appear as if Satan has been soundly defeated, or is he going? He's putting up a pretty good fight right now. That's kind of the pushback that people would have with this view. The other it would be this: Are we currently experiencing the reign of the saints in the world? Would you experience that? Now, some of you go, well, it doesn't feel like it right now, okay? Now, you would say that because you go, have you looked at the news recently? Like, it does not look like the kingdom of God is advancing and Satan's like, I give up. You know, like, you don't see that. There are certain places in the world where, um, give me an example. If you look at a picture of Christianity right now, it's advancing very quickly in Africa and Asia, and it's retreating in North America. So if you were to look at adherence, right, like here we're going, shh, and those places are going like this. So in certain places, 
rule and reign are going forward. Like it, 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 there, there's a little bit more of an uh, involvement in, in the, I would say, um, prosperity of the world and the certain nations. But would you say right now we're experiencing the reign? Amillennialists uh, would say, well, it's a different type of reigning, right? Like we're already but not yet. Like there's certain things that we can, but, but not all the way there. And then we finally get to our final category tonight. So if none of those have hit you so far, here is post millennialism i'm serious this is hard y- y'all y'all think it's hard to like learn this it's hard to say this I'm, I'm, my tongue is kind of getting stuck okay um this uh prefix post right means what means after so it means that the return of christ comes after what is described of in this millennial okay so post-millennialists believe that christ will return after the millennium they believe that there will be a thousand-year reign on the earth-ish, thousand-year-ish, okay? Uh, symbolic reign, and then Christ will return. So with this, they believe that Christ is going to return after that time period. So what happens during that time period? Those holding this belief do not interpret the millennium as a literal thousand years. You go, okay, that makes sense because Christ has been gone for... More than a thousand years, right? So they don't they don't believe this is a literal thousand years. So what does this mean? This means that this view believes that there will be a reign on the earth before Christ comes back, and it will be experienced in the success of the church. So this belief says, while sharing many views with amillennialists, postmillennialism holds that the church will gradually experience success and achieve a golden age on earth. So this believes that over time, more advances will be made, success will happen, and the church will reign on the earth in the sense of the influence of the church and has won so many sections of the population of all around the earth that the whole world is benefiting from what does it look like when the people of God flourish living on this earth the way that God has called us to live. They hold that the gospel will continue to impact the world until we reach a majority level of what I would call human flourishing. That there is coming a day and a time where the majority of the earth will follow Christ and the world will be in a better place than what it is now. Now, with that, some of you go, that sounds awesome, right? That sounds like really good news to me um, because we're putting in a whole lot of work to try to see that happen, right? What bothers you today when you watch the news is you're going, what's wrong with these people? Like, why don't they just surrender to Christ and do things God's ways? That would make more sense, right? And you go, in my own life, why don't I just surrender to Christ and do things more his way? Like, what, what's wrong here? This view says that that's going to happen. Now, Here's the questions to consider about this view, and you probably can see this one coming. Are we witnessing gradual and continual progress around the world? Now, once again, some of you say, well, you said in Africa or Asia or different places that's here, but in the United States, uh, I don't know, right? All right. How many of you, I'm sitting here going like, okay, I know there's some folks in this room that are younger than me. There might be a few folks in this room that might be a little bit older than me, Okay. I have lived long enough to see the United States as I know it is not the same United States that I grew up in. 
Now, I'm not one who thinks that this country was ever perfect. Everybody was following Jesus and going to church and obeying the commandments. Okay, I've never thought that. But I do remember a time when football practice couldn't happen on Wednesday night. You know? You had to give people the right to go to church. You just had to, right? You, just, you, you couldn't do it. I remember, that was like, I'm not that ancient. Like, I can remember, I would play football, and Wednesday night practice, you got off early, so everybody could go to church if you wanted to. Like, I remember growing up in that. We're not seeing that. Now, are we seeing other places where the rule and reign of Christ is advancing? Yeah, we are. There, there are some places in the world where it's, it's happening. And, like, countries are changing. People groups are, are, are changing, and, and we are seeing that. But are we witnessing that gradual, continual progress around the world? Also, the question that people will have to go with is, does the Bible teach a symbolic or a literal rule for the people of God? Is the rule of God, because in, in this view, some people say, well, it's more symbolic in nature, but no, people say, no, it's a literal rule if you read the passage. Like, it's like the people of God are actually ruling on the earth. Now, I have done my best job in the last 43 minutes to be able to at least our 40 minutes to explain to you some of these concepts. And some of you are like, my head hurts. I'm not coming back next week. Okay. This is some, some initial building blocks for us. But this is something that I do want to teach you. And that is essentials before we leave today. We've, we've talked about premillennial. We've talked about amillennial. We've talked about postmillennial. One of my first New Testament professors said he was not either of those things. He is what he called himself a panmillennial. Da-da-da. You know what that means? It's all going to pan out in the end anyway. Okay, that's kind of his view, okay? I don't know how this is going to fall out, but I know this. It's all going to come together. And while I go, that may be, you know, not going all the way what we need to do, I will say, folks, no matter what you believe, you better have that view in it. That you believe this. Christ is going to fix it. Now, I may not be sure of all the timeline of how this happens, but what are the essentials that we need to walk away with? This one is here. If your view has Christ victorious in the end, you can find commonality with others who disagree on the details. So you might be a, man, I'm an amillennialist. Okay, well, that's fine. But guess what? Pre and post also think Jesus is going to win in the end. Guess what? You can still be friends, okay? You don't have to like, have these warring mentality. If you don't believe my view, you're not blah, blah, blah. Like, that's just... that's. Wasting a lot of time and, and not doing a whole lot of help for other people. If your view has Christ victorious in the end, you can find commonality with others who disagree on the details. Also, he's victorious in the end. You've got to make sure this is something for all people. Uh, and that's why the second line is important, I believe, that ensure that your eschatology comes from Scripture more than stories or speculation. And, and I say that to say, in all cases... The easy target today is dispensational premillennial because it's the one that has movies about it, okay? Or songs about it or different stuff like that. And I want to tell you right now, I don't think that's a bad view, but I do think this. If I were to say, what is your belief? And you go, you know what? I saw this movie one time, okay? Or mama used to sing this song. And I always think, and you can't say, this is how I interpret Revelation 19 and 20. Or this is how, like if it's that, I want to I warn you that oftentimes we can get thoughts and images of um, what God is doing based upon common popular references rather than Scripture. I'll give you an example. Tomorrow, um, some people will be celebrating Halloween, right? Or you may be celebrating Reformation Day, depending upon how you know, um, 
church history nerd you are, okay? Um, tomorrow is the day where Martin Luther went to church with a hammer, if you don't know this, right? This is the guy who was, like, tired of all the Catholic abuses. He went to church one day, took a hammer, nailed 95 theses to this wall, and basically everybody could go by and read it, basically saying this, the Catholic priests are corrupt, and y'all need to wake up. This is what Scripture teaches. And, and the Reformation started, and that's why we're in the type of church we're in today, because that day happened. So tomorrow, I'm dressing up as a um, German monk named Martin Luther. Okay, so anyway, that, that happened on October 31st. Where is that coming from? Because tomorrow also, when people are celebrating Halloween, there's going to be a lot of kids tomorrow dressed up as the devil, right? You may have done that when you were a kid. You know, like, I don't always think, like, some of y'all don't need to dress up. You just act like him. Okay, but if, if I were to ask you, what would, the, what would the kids that dress up like the devil look like tomorrow? Give me some examples of what they'll be wearing. What? Horns? What's he got in his hand? Pitchfork. What's behind him? Guys, where's that come from? It comes from writings a few hundred years ago. has no place in the scripture whatsoever. But when I, when I say devil, that's the picture that comes to your mind. That's what comes in our culture's mind, right? The devil is this kind of like comic figure, like walking around with horns. Like, oh, I wouldn't see that coming. A guy, typically... I'm worried about a guy who runs up at me with a pitchfork and is and all in red. Okay, like that's just, okay, I see that one coming, right? Is that how Satan looks in Scripture? It says he comes as an angel of light. Looks appealing. Brings you in a little bit. And the reason why I bring that is, is this. Most people would view the devil based upon caricatures that they've heard throughout our culture and not on what Scripture teaches. And I want to encourage you to develop what you believe about the end times not on what you've heard here, watched there, read there, unless that book is the Bible. And if you were to open up the scripture, you would at least know this. Um, there are some things, even in this, I'm going to be honest with you, there are a lot of question marks in my mind about even how I hold all these things together. And, you, and like I said, you'd say, Travis, can you should tell me what to believe? I would love to, but I... I I kind of own the fence on a couple of these things because I go, I can see that. Oh, but that's a good point there. And we're, this is what I do know. I believe this world is messed up. I believe scripture is very clear. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But I believe there's coming a day where Jesus is going to come and it ain't even a fair fight when he shows up. But he's going to come back and he's going to make everything that is wrong, he's going to restore it to being right again. And I know this, I don't know the time and how this exactly falls, and I can't be confident in this, but I do know this. The way to be on the winning side is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make sure you're with him. And so you can spend all your life trying to figure out the timeline, but I'll just say this. It's more important that you know that you belong to him when that time does come. And you can spend your entire life arguing about the second coming when half the world is yet to hear about his first coming. That's probably more important to talk about what we do know, and then to wrestle through Scripture about what the questions we have. And I do believe, like John, that even when he got this revelation and he says, at the end of it, uh, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Even that, I imagine that when John heard Jesus say, I'm coming soon, that timeline's a little bit different than what John initially thought, wasn't it? Somebody says, I'm coming soon, I'm thinking 15 minutes or I'm out. Okay, right? That's what that means to me. Apparently, Jesus meant something else. And so for all of this, we have to understand there are some things that we need to work hard to understand and embrace and some things we have to trust that God's got under control even if we can't put it all together. So with that, 
I believe that Christ is going to return and there will be a reign that uh, no one can uh, remove him from. And next week, we're going to go a little bit further. And I'm not going to say it's going to be easier or harder, but we're going to continue working through it together. But this is what I do know. Out of all this stuff that causes us our heads to hurt, above all else, I really want your hearts to long for it. Right? Like, I, I'm just ready for Jesus to be triumphant for all to see. And uh, I got plans this week for what I would like to do, but if he shows up tonight or tomorrow, he's got my vote. I am in for whenever he decides to come, and I want us to at least prepare our hearts for that more than all else. So, Father, tonight, as we conclude this time and think about the next couple weeks as we walk into even further to understand the things about how you have put together about for us to know about your second coming, we do want this above all else. We want to know you And we want to know you now, but we can't wait to see you then. And so help us do all that we can to prepare our own souls, that for whenever that time may come, that we would be ready. For all those people that we care for and love and and want to know, Christ, that we would be diligent in making sure you are known right now. God, we are waiting for your second coming, but so much of the world is yet to hear about your first. Help us to tell that message, the gospel message, that Jesus, you came to earth, You lived a perfect life, you died a death, you rose victoriously, and you are coming back again. And for that day we wait. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.